The Beaux-Arts Photography Podcast with Alan and Natalie Brio. This is the continuation of our series on the podcast story. Part and four. Yes, this is part four of four. I think we are going to finish today. Yes. And this last part, or at least we hope it's the last part, is going to start at number 65, which was the first episode of a series titled Living in Navarroland. And on the last episode, part three of the podcast story, we ended up at the episode just before that. And we said that we wanted to wait until the next episode to start talking about living in Navarroland. Because that was a very long series of episodes. I think there is a total of six episodes. I think so. And they were not all recorded one after another in succession. They were recorded over a long period of time, right? I think we spent one year or even more than one year recording those. Every time we had a different idea or a new idea on an aspect of living in Navajoland, we would produce a new episode. And so we produced some on uh, starting by photographing in Navajoland, starting a business in Navajoland, the Grand Canyon Art Show, the non-judgmental aspects of Navajo culture, hiking on Navajo land, and Navajo humor. I think the last one was Navajo humor. Oh, yes. So do you remember some of these episodes? I do, because I think the Navajo humor, we were talking about uh, the T-shirts that were for sale at the flea market, like Mary had a little lamb and Grandma butchered it. That's right. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah. that's one that just comes to mind right away. Oh, Homeland Security, which was uh, oh, yeah. I think Geronimo since eighteen uh, since eighteen eighty. Uh, yeah, it was Geronimo and other yes war chiefs. Yeah, yeah, or retired sheep herder. That's still one of my favorites. Yeah, it's hard to think of sheep herding as being a job where you retire. Fry bread inspector. FBI. <laughs> <laughs> FBI fry bread inspector. Yeah. And that you have to know what is fry bread, right? Mm, <laughs> something that's really yummy. Which is very healthy, right? It's yes. bread fried in lard. Dough fried in lard. But the whole story of uh, living in Navarroland was that the idea was to talk about our experience living in Navarroland. Yes. And so the first one talks about photographing in Navajo land and uh, selling your work in Navajo land. You may want to play a little excerpt yeah. from there. So, Living in Navajoland, part one, starting a photography business in Navajoland. And we're going to listen to a random excerpt and see what we get. Do this full time, and uh, we move to Chinle. We move to Navajoland, to Canyon de Chez. Chinle is the town at the mouth of Canyon de Chez. In, uh, I think it was 1995. Five. Yes. Yeah. And uh, for the first two years that we were there, I tried to sort of find a way to sell photographs, basically. Well, and, and the first uh, outlet was uh, pretty much the arts and crafts shows in Chen Li, uh, right. just after Thanksgiving, and they would go through till Christmas. The bazaars. Yes, the bazaars. <laughs> we sold yes. artwork in uh, bazaars on the Navajo Reservation, uh, in uh, cafeterias, in uh, church halls, in whatever public space uh, they would organize them, basically. Right, the community center. Yeah, right. And very often we were the only white people. 
We were. Oh my! We were the minority. <laughs> Everybody was Navajo, and they would look at us and not say anything. And we felt very um, self-conscious. Self-conscious is the word. <laughs> so that was an excerpt from our first episode series on living in Navajo land, and we we're basically talking about here about starting our business. Yes. The very beginning, and. But- you know, the challenges that we faced. Oh, yeah. But also starting small, right. you know. You didn't apply for major art shows uh, in California when we were living in Chinle. It was too far for one. I didn't know they existed for two. And I did not have a product. I wasn't there yet. Right. And that's something that we stress really to our students when they say that they want to start selling their work, that they don't want to start where you have the big dogs oh, because no. they're going to be eaten alive. And some of them listen to us and uh, they start small and they grow over the years. Others don't listen to us and they do what we tell them not to do. And very often they end up being discouraged. They do and they quit. They because, give up. Yeah, they are up against somebody who is not only much more experienced than them, but much more aggressive than them. And they know exactly what it takes, what you have to do to discourage a newcomer, you know, a, f- a newbie, you know, a, a rookie. I mean, y- you do the Indy 500 and you have rookies, right? Rookies are people that have never competed in a race before. And we'd make all the mistakes. Oh, yeah. And does a rookie win the race? Well, <laughs> occasionally, yes, right? Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it's more likely that the rookie is going to have problems. And I think that for us, Chinle, because of its isolation and because of the fact that it offered uh, opportunities to sell locally, sort of prevented us from having contact with big guns, you know, so to speak, too early. Oh, yeah. And I think you went to Kayenta or Tuba City. Didn't you do some of the arts and crafts sales in those areas? I don't remember everything, but I know I would get on the road and sell note cards to gift shops and trading posts and hotels. In Kayenta, right. Wherever there was a store, and uh, the store owner was interested in buying. Right, <laughs> <You know>? right. <laughs> that was the qualification, you know. Do you have a store and <laughs> do you want the product? <laughs> right. But I think that where we started encountering big guns was the Grand Canyon. Oh, definitely. And we did face some very oh, serious competition. And there. they had no problem telling us where yeah. exactly we were on well, that Well, they wanted us pole. gone because <laughs> they had the place to themselves and they wanted that to continue and we were unwanted. Right, uh, right. They told me, you're the lowest guy on the totem pole and we greased the pole and, you know, yeah. <laughs> good luck with that, right. you know. <laughs> we can't kick you out because we're not in charge of the show, but we'll do whatever it takes that you decide to go out on your own. You right. live on your own. Right? So what was the first episode? And it was about starting our business in Navajo land. And, of course, one of the advantages of starting a business in Navajo land was that there was no distractions. That's correct, yes. There was no theater. There was no restaurants to speak of. There was no place to go after No movies. There was nothing really to do. I mean, entertainment was renting a movie and getting a pizza and some ice cream. Hiking, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, besides hiking, uh, in the evening after dark, you know, entertainment was basically that, you know, movie and pizza. Right. And there was nothing else. And then the second episode was specifically about the Grand Canyon Art Show. And that's what I was talking about. But listen to an, an excerpt from that one to be really 
sort of clear about what we talked about and sort of refresh our memory and go back in time, so to speak. Yeah. It's not exactly that they would volunteer information, but I think at some point they just looked at us and said, you know, this is ridiculous, and if you're going to do this, if you're going to be there, you might as well just do it right, you know. But because of that, when I was doing shows in Scottsdale up until 2008, I would help all of my girlfriends. I mean, they were running over asking me, well, what's the, what's the tax, you know? They would borrow packaging materials. They, they would bring their monthly taxes and have mm -hmm. me help them do it at the show. And I was willing to help them because, you know, when we started, people helped us. To some extent, some helped us, but not all of them helped no. us. Most of them did not want to help. You know, most of them were happy just making their sales and watching us flounder, struggle, you know, struggle <laughs> you know, have a hard time and, you know, be stressed and get nowhere. Um, but we obviously want to help. And uh, that's because, as I said, I'd rather compete on the basis of quality than on the basis of knowing where to get frames and plastic bags, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. But the progress did not come immediately. I mean, it, we went fast, but it still took several years. You know, we... Uh, took five years. It took five... Well, we did the show for how long? Five years? Seven years? Oh, maybe seven years, because the first year you only yeah. had two days, and then maybe the second year, eight days? Yeah, the first year we had two days, and it might sound very little, but, you know... That was, was a big deal for us. And it was big income for us at the time, and they were very hard to, to get shows, you know. Nobody could get in. Right. And a lot of the artists... Uh, looked at me and talked to me and said, how did you get in this show? Right. And I told him, I said, well, I called Mary Lois. You know, I found the phone number. It took me two days. I talked to the operator. I called everybody at the Grand Canyon. And eventually they told me that it was organized by the lady that operated the Bright Angel Air Salon. And I called her and she said, sure, send me some of your work. And then uh, she gave me two of her days. And a lot of artists were shocked. They because were. they did not want anybody to get in that show. Or they, to know the person right. uh, it was know, a who organized yeah, it. They were yeah. keeping it a secret. And, they uh, were. And what she did is, uh, in the very beginning, not just that first year, but... She so here we're really talking about the specifics of how we started the Grand Canyon show. Right. And it's really interesting to listen back at it, because we're touching on important issues. We're touching on adversity, like we talked about before, but also on the fact that you got to start slowly, you know, that you're not going to make money right away. Right. And I think it's very interesting to me that we recorded things about the challenge of getting started. Because when you read or you listen to people that talk about their business, usually they talk about the time that they became successful. They don't really talk about the challenges. That's true. And I think that the problem with talking with the successors is that it suddenly is interesting. I mean, we all like a good success story, you know. Absolutely. Nobody wants to hear about the loser of the Indy 500. Everybody <laughs> wants to hear about the winner, you know. Right. And it holds true for everything, you know. Right. We don't interview the loser, you know, very much or only in order to know how bad it was. Right. right. But for the person or the people, the persons that want to get started in this endeavor, that want to sell their work, Learning about how we succeeded doesn't really cut it because what we are going to encounter are the challenging aspects that we encountered and talking with these challenging aspects is really where the help is. Oh, yeah, I agree. I think what also needs to be mentioned is when we did the arts and crafts shows in Chen Li, there was no investment. 
you paid what ten dollars a table twenty dollars a table we didn't go out and buy the pro panels or easy up tent and even when we first did the first shows at the grand canyon the easels the uh to hang the artwork mm-hmm. was there for us to use they were already there we didn't have any of those show materials or whatever you want to call them yeah absolutely not and you know. it was a good thing that it was provided or it wasn't necessary because a we had no money to buy them and b i don't think that if i had gone to the bank in chinle they would have given me a loan right <laughs> <laughs> it did not look like that well, kind you, of bank you know you and i had no collateral you weren't working <laughs> i wasn't working i had no collateral my most expensive uh, it wasn't the car well no but my most valuable asset was probably my cameras it was. but you know banks don't really take cameras as assets you no know? so it was definitely a good thing but i also think that when people get started in this kind of endeavor they make the mistake of over investing or borrowing money oh i agree you know, to a large extent and usually more than they need i always say that the first thing that people do when they get in business is get business card printed and then go to the bank and get a loan right I did not do either. I no. did not need business cards because if people could not do business with me face to face, it was unlikely they were going to call me at home. And I did not money now, not in six months. And then go get a loan, I did, could not apply. And I did not see the point, really. I did not see what I could buy that would make me more successful in that particular situation. What I needed was customers. Right. You know. Right. And that's really the interesting aspects of teaching marketing, you know, or, or salesmanship or business the endeavor of selling your own work. A lot of our students, if not almost all of them, don't realize that the hardest or the most challenging aspect of running a business is finding customers. Absolutely. They're I like, know. you know, I want to get my work better. I'm like, for what? To sell it. So, well, it's good enough. We can sell it. You know, we just may not be able to ask top price for it because it's not at the top of, you know, the pyramid in terms of quality, but we can sell it. So, oh, so I can sell it like that. I say, yeah, you can sell it like that. I say, so what do I need to do? I say, well, you need to find out who you're going to sell it to. I say, oh, well, I'm going to open a website. I say, okay, you're going to open a website. And v- when you open your website, it's going to come with customers. Right, <laughs> right. It's going to come with HTML code. It's going to come with links. It's going to come with photos if you put them in there. But it's not going to come with customers. No, it's not. You know, you can't buy no. customers. <laughs> you know? You've got to find them yourself. You have to convince people to buy your work. And that's the most challenging. Oh, and they're like, oh, is. well, I thought you would help me find customers. I say, well, I can help you find customers, but I can't give them to you. I don't have any extra customers, you know. And plus, my customers like my work. That's what they buy from me. I don't know if they would like your work and would buy from you. Right, you right. Know? Well, the surprise look on their faces when you tell them that they have to find their own audience mm-hmm. is mind-boggling to me because... I can't comprehend it personally. They never thought of that aspect of running a business. Right. And that's because right. they have no training in business, you know. Right. They, they think that automatically if you have a product, you have an audience. Because they come from fields where they were employed by very large companies that had an audience. Right. And, you know, for example, if you work from, you know, Intel, right, 
Yes. And Intel creates a new chip. Well, immediately there is an audience, and that audience are all the chip buyers from the previous generation who want the next fastest chip. Basically, right. that's the audience. So they don't really need to look for an audience. They have to maintain the audience. Right. But in the beginning, you know, they did. And that's what they don't realize. They're in the very beginning. Right. They don't have 20 years under their belt of audience gathering, so to speak. But, you know, when we did these different shows, our audience was always different at each of those shows. And if they ask me, you know, who was your audience in Chin Lee? Who was your audience at Grand Canyon? Who was your audience in Scottsdale? I can describe that customer down to a T, and mm-hmm. they're all different. Well, of course, it's all, they're all different. But most important is the fact that we were doing art shows, which right. is an activity where you don't have to look for an audience. The audience will come to you. Right. The audience will be people that go to that show. And some of them have been going to the show for years. Sometimes, some of them, it will be their first time at that show. But regardless, they don't know you at the show. No. Because you have no way of telling people that you don't know that you're going to do this show. But the show organizers advertise the show. People go to the show, and then they discover you. Right. That's how it works. If and they if do you, their job right. right. Well, yeah, but let's, even if they don't do their job right, you know, I mean, you will have a lower audience, but you're going to have an audience. Right. And, of course, your job as a show artist is to make contact with as many people as you can and then maintain that contact through email, perhaps phone calls, you know, whatever you want to use as a way of contacting them. Absolutely. That's why we recommend that photographers that are new at selling their work start by doing art shows. Absolutely. But a lot of them say, well, you know, art shows is tiring. It's a lot of work. I have to buy a lot of equipment. I don't want to do it for one reason or another. I want to sell on the web. Well. But then how do you find an audience? Right. Because they're not going to come on the web because you have a you know, website. The way they would go to an art show because the show exists. <laughs> they don't know your website. So you have to advertise your website. Absolutely. You have to make it known. And that is a huge amount of and work. And capture those emails. Well, first of all, before you can capture the email, is capture the attention of, your, right. of a potential audience. Absolutely. Because these people out there, you know, and these include everyone that goes on the web, are completely blasé. They are overwhelmed every day with email, social media, posts, you know, news, um, reports, reviews, essays, uh, you, you name it. I mean, all day long. Right. The last thing they need is one more guy on in the game. Right. So you really have to do some very, very heavy work to get some level of attention. And on to be remembered. Absolutely. You right. have to know how to be remembered. And we, it's boiling down to that. How do you get people to remember you? Right. And that is a huge challenge. And that's why we say do art shows. But if you don't want to do art shows, it doesn't mean that you don't have a chance. But it means you're going to have to work very, very, very hard at getting your name out there. Literally. Right. I you agree. have to make a lot of noise. And that's some of the things we talked about at the Grand Canyon. And, of course, at the Grand Canyon, we had 5 million people a year, and that basically bypassed the necessity to do all this social media thing. But, you know, we had to work very hard at getting into the show, and we had to work very hard at being at the show, you know, from sometime 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. You know, we were there. Oh, goodness. You know, yeah, at least. Uh, minimum. Minimum. It could have been longer. Not 12 <laughs> hours a day, but um, 16, 20 hours sometimes uh, or 16 hours. Yeah. I mean, I forgot. You know, it was crazy. Yeah. You have to find your own way. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, you have to find your own way. That's but Success is not guaranteed. That is not an endeavor that generates, you know, guaranteed success. Right. So from there, from this second episode on the Grand Canyon Art Show, we continued and... 
we talked about more specific aspects of Navajo culture, and one of them was the non-judgmental aspects of Navajo culture. And we have two parts here, and that means we had a lot to say about it, obviously. I guess. <laughs> you know, we had part one and part Sounds two. Sounds like it. Well, because I think it, it's a very important aspect of Navajo culture, and it influenced us a lot. Because I remember when I started, the Navajos had no problem with me you know, making uh, artwork, you know, creating photographs and not working. But the white teachers were going to you and saying that I was being abusive and I was taking advantage of you. Oh, yeah. And all of that. I mean, they didn't even have a problem with saying yeah. it to my face. Yeah. So you need to stop that. Alan is going to... He's so, taking advantage of yeah. you, he's not working, he's just staying home and he's doing nothing. You right. Know? And that was judgmental. And the Navajos, obviously, we were the majority, whose land it is, had no problem with that. Right. And a lot of people, I think, misunderstand non-judgmental for passive. Oh, but no, they're so different. It is not at all. No, I would not. <laughs> that's not what it I is. I would not yeah. necessarily say, yeah. you know, a Navajo is passive. A Navajo passive, no. Are they non-judgmental? Yes. Yes. Yeah. You can. You don't have to judge somebody in order to be passive. You know. It's right. or, or maybe to put it differently, it's not because you don't judge somebody that you're passive. Right. You have full awareness of what that person is doing. You just decide not to judge them. You know, not to judge the actions. Right. It's actually an action in itself. It's actually demonstrating action. Well, I know at the Grand Canyon. You should probably play an excerpt from it yeah. because um, I know at the Grand Canyon when I would encounter a difficult situation with um, a tourist or whatever, I would ask myself, how would the Navajos handle this situation or what would the Navajos say? And that would help me sometimes yeah. think, yeah, of, what you mean. think of a way to... Yeah. Um, you know, if I didn't know what to say. Find or a solution. Find a solution, right. yeah. It was your way into finding a solution. It was, yeah. And it, and I think it helped me, and it still does, because, you know, sometimes I do find myself asking. Yeah. Uh, so let's know. see what we were saying. You know. Right, but asking them to stop and disease, in right. a way, you know, stop doing that. Right? That's the ultimate them. way of judgment, where not only what you're doing in their view is bad, and not only are they coming to tell you that it is, but we're also going farther than that. We are saying, stop. No more of this. <laughs> right? Right. A Navajo would never do that. No. Far from that. They, like I said, they have an opinion on, on what we like and dislike, but we are not going to go to the person and express that view. And I think that that goes a long way towards encouraging people to be creative. Oh, yes, definitely. And when I taught on the Navajo reservation, I encouraged my art students all the time. I worked on their self-esteem, I always encouraged them, and then during parent-teacher conferences, I would have parents that would look at their child's portfolio, you know, everything that they had done to that point, and some of the parents were totally shocked. They could not believe that their son or daughter could draw or paint. They had no idea whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And some of them told me that this was a side of their child that they had never seen before and that I was able to get them to, uh, you know, express that side of their child that they had never seen before. You were able to make it come out. Mm -hmm. It was in there somewhere, yes. but yes. somehow it hadn't come out. And it was really interesting because there are a number of So here we were talking about the relationship between 
being non-judgmental and emphasizing creativity. Right. Because that's the direct consequence. I think so. That, that's really the challenge. You know, if you are judgmental, you can stifle creativity. You can, yes. But at the same time, as a teacher, you have to point out to what works and what doesn't work. You just want to point it out in a non-judgmental manner. You know, that's the whole thing. Oh, yes, definitely. And that's really a skill, you know. Well, and, and the way to point it out is usually, in my class anyway, it was through observation. Well, look mm. at this beautiful curved mm. line here. It's not a straight line. It's a curved line. Right. You know, so it wasn't really a judgment mm -hmm. call at all. I was mostly referring to an observation. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to look at this more carefully right. when we draw it. <laughs> yeah, but the, basically what you're saying is pay close attention. Maybe yeah. focus more or, or maybe become more aware of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah it's, it's different when I teach photography because I tell students that I expect or that I want them to reach a certain standard, a certain level of quality. And that's the point of departure, that we are going to go for this standard of quality, which could be my prints, for example. Right. And then after that, it's not that I criticize their work, but I point to what it is that they're doing that gets to that level or doesn't get to that level. Right. So what gets to that level or goes close to it can be continued. Mm -hmm. And what doesn't get to that level has to be stopped and replaced by something that works, right? Right. That's the whole idea. Right. And so it, it's more of a process-oriented teaching approach than a person-oriented teaching approach. I don't criticize the person. I don't talk about the person. I don't say you don't have the skills or I don't say you don't have the courage or you don't have it in you in one way or another. That's not what I say. What I say is let's look at the techniques that will get you there. Right. Right. So right. in processing photographs, the whole concept of workflow becomes very important because a lot of students come in with their first print review and I comment on their prints, for example, that they are too dark or, you know, the colors are faded or they are not very clean or there is too much contrast, none of contrast, you know, I mean, on and on and on. And I say, well, let's look at what kind of work. I either say, you don't have a workflow, for example. And they say, oh, yes, I have a workflow. And of course, they have a workflow because if you convert and you process and you print, that's the workflow, right? But the question is, what kind of workflow do you have? Right. If you're a fisherman, for example, you probably have a fishing workflow. That is, you take your fishing rod, you take a line, you take a hook, you put a bait on the hook and you throw it into the water. And then you're like, how different is that from the next fishing man? Well, the difference is that the other one may have a very different rod, a very different line, a very different hook, a very different bait. Right? right. And they may be fishing at a different time or at a different depth or who knows, right? It's not the appearances. Everybody has a fishing line, mm -hmm. right? Everybody has a fishing rod, but some people are going to be more successful than others. And that comes from the nature of the equipment because it's more adapted to that particular type of fish in regards to fishing, right? In regards to photography, everybody has a workflow, but what kind of workflow do you have? Right. There is some workflows that are specific to animal photography, for people photography. There's some workflows that are good for everything, but excellent at nothing. Right. My workflow is designed for one thing and one thing only, and that is to create fine art landscape photographs, not fine art portraits, not fine art animals, not fine art anything else except landscapes. Right. And that's what I teach. And that's a very efficient workflow. And when they start to go through that workflow and learn what it is and see what it does, they usually come back to us and say, well, I thought I had a workflow, but it wasn't a very good one. Right. 
And that's what I want them to realize, that the problem is not with them. They have the determination, they probably have the skills, but what they don't have is the technique, you know. And they usually have the gear. That's what's very interesting. You know, they don't need to buy a computer, a printer, Photoshop, all of that. They have all of that. What they don't have is the workflow to go through the steps, to go through the process. Right. And that, to me, means a non-judgmental approach. Because I'm not talking with the person. Right. Right. So we have to have an approach somewhat like that. It doesn't have to be the same, but it has to be somewhat like that in order to teach, right? Because the Navajo way of teaching is to just have people watch the master. But that works if you have a lifetime to do that. <laughs> yes. It doesn't work very well if you're in your 60s and you want to start a new hobby or profession, right? Right. <laughs> you, know, right. you don't have that much time, you know. Well, I mean, the judgmental part in my classroom, I would say, was probably the grade, because I have to give everybody a grade. Mm. Which is probably contrary to Navajo culture, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they would not grade each other, you know. If you have an apprentice studying with a medicine man or a basket maker or a potter, they wouldn't get a grade, right? You know, the whole thing with apprenticeship, you don't get grades. Right. But you you get to do something until the master thinks or considers it to be good enough, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and your grade is the ability to do that thing well and the freedom to move on to the next, right? Right. So, so in a sense, it's a nonverbal grade, right? <laughs> yeah, but it's a very interesting aspect of culture. One that obviously in our culture is almost foreign. I mean, everybody is passing a judgment on everyone all the time. We're constantly judging each other, you know. And in art, it's very, very traumatizing because the last thing you want is hear something about your work that um, is to the effect that you don't know what you're doing or you're not good enough or whatever. So from here, we had two episodes on the non-judgmental aspects of Navajo culture. And then after that, we had one episode on hiking in Navajo land. Mm -hmm. And I think we did that episode because we did so much hiking. Oh, right? we did every weekend. Yeah. I mean, until we, you did the Grand Canyon show right, regularly. Yeah. And then we as we became more weekend. and more successful, we had less and less time to there hike. There was zero hiking. Yeah. In fact, you never took pictures anymore towards yeah, the right. end there. You didn't have time to I photograph. I was so successful doing what I love, but I could no longer do what <laughs> <Right>. I love. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't even photograph. So that makes you wonder what is success, right? What is success? Is I mean, is the, success? Yeah, well, it's success in business, definitely, yeah. but not success in the ability to take photographs, right? right. We actually had to... Uh, make an effort to take more photographs. It became very um, challenging. But let's listen to an excerpt of... Uh, Which one are you going to do, the non-judgmental? Hiking on, on oh, Navajo hiking land. in Navajo land. So let's see what we, we are saying here. So this is an excerpt of hiking in Navajo land. We joined uh, the Utah Rock Art Association. So sometimes we'd meet with them like once a month or something. We would do an outing, a rock art. And it was usually fairly close to us or bluff like Montezuma's Creek. Montezuma Creek. Montezuma Creek. And we would camp there all weekend with them. And that was a lot of fun. But being with them and learning about rock art and studying rock art, when we went back to Three Turkey Canyon, I remember when we saw archaic rock art. And I was really surprised because I didn't realize that we saw some rock art from um, other periods. Mm. Well, we started being able to differentiate between the different periods of rock art, you know, from the archaic to the basket maker to the Pueblo 1, Pueblo 2, Pueblo 3. And the barrier style. And the barrier style, which is also a very old style, you know, the Glen Canyon 
style also, you know, all of that. We were very knowledgeable about rock art. And so we knew that even though you can't date it precisely, archaic is 5,000 years and older. But when I saw some of that archaic rock art at the top of Three Turkey Canyon, I was so surprised. I was like, my goodness, you yeah. know, there's... It's been at it for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> this stuff yeah. has been here for yeah. a long time. And, and the archaic was at the very, very top. It was. Yeah. And it's yeah. still there. Just yeah. as you walk in, basically, it was marking the entrance. Yes. Uh, because the thing that was interesting with Three Turkey Canyon is that on the one... We were talking about not just hiking, but also discovering rock art sites. Oh, yes. And, and becoming knowledgeable and being able to know the difference between the different rock art periods. Right. Which is really important. Well, it, it can be important. I mean, it, it depends how you look at it. But if you belong to one of the rocket associations, you learn that difference because we know so much about it. Well, it was just fun hiking on our own and seeing the different periods and being able to recognize them. And discovering. And, and that was fun. Because we discovered quite a few sites. Yes. And we had a lot of friends that were very, very knowledgeable about rock art sites, had seen I don't know how many, you know, not just thousands, but probably tens of thousands. And they would tell me, I don't think anybody knew about this site. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not saying that natives did not know or don't know today, but white people, I think you rediscovered it. That was a very exciting time because it's exploration. Oh, it's absolutely. It's discovery. You don't know yeah. what you're going to find. It's completely open. We were always looking for something around the corner in the canyons right. that yeah. we were hiking. You know, there yeah. may be something like as you right. come around that beautiful sandstone wall you may see something boom just right there one more bend <laughs> one, more, one bend. more bend and we used to tell each other just mm. one more two mm. more bends no yeah. one more one more mm. bend yeah yeah, it, yeah it's almost like the lure of the next turn yeah you know, yeah and i remember hiking some of those canyons in the snow mm. in the winter and not even thinking anything of it mm. you know it was it was cold if you were in the mm. shade but if you were in the sun on the sandstone side in the sun it would actually get quite warm in the winter yeah. in the yeah, afternoons exactly, yeah. one more turn yeah and that's really something that we did because we were right there it did not take any time getting to these locations we did not have to take you know, a week off or three days off, we could go there, come back, and be home in the evening. Oh, yeah. Except for the rock art in Utah, where we would usually go for the weekend, right? Right, we but would. But in the Chinle area, we would just go there, you know, oh, leave I in the morning and come walking, back in the evening. walking to the yeah. trailer back in full darkness. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and not even thinking anything of it. Right, yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, it was an exciting time. And uh, that's what we talked about, you know, the unique uh, experience of hiking in Navajo land because what people don't realize is that if you live in Navajo land and uh, you know what do you do during the weekends right right I mean yeah, well, you know it's either watch tv and eat potato chips or hike around or right. go to the big town but that's or a huge amount they would of drive three hours to Flagstaff right. yeah. and spend the whole weekend in Flagstaff yeah. you it's know. one of those right right go to town eat potato chips and watch tv or hike and I think the thing that we did the most was hiking. We, we did. did not spend any time eating potato chips and uh, watching TV because we didn't have a TV. <laughs> no, we didn't. Actually, we watched uh, movies from Rent-A-Flick on a computer monitor. Yeah, yeah we watched. Uh, we had a VCR hooked to a computer, and that's how we watched oh, DVDs. Yeah. But um, we did not have a TV, and um, you know, hiking was our main activity for entertainment. You know, right? Or for I always you know, packed a lunch. You know. Something. And we are hiked entire eat. canyons. One little bit at a time. Every weekend we would do a section, maybe, uh, you know, five miles section, 
or three mile section. And then next week we'd do another section and eventually we would do the entire canyon. Right. Yeah. So there was a method to the madness, so to speak. There was, absolutely. And we (laughs) discovered areas that nobody knows, you know, because we went in there so much and uh, we were interested in looking for areas that are particularly photogenic. And that's what allows us to do today the little-known workshops in the Chinle area. Right. Because we go to some of these places that we discovered years ago. And some of them we haven't been back for 15 years. No, but we can still find we that can still old find them. two-track yeah. road that yeah. is barely visible. Might take a little bit of time, may not be but you know immediate, what? but I know. You know, if you just persevere, you find it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, the roads have disappeared sometimes. That's the well, problem. Well, they're not using them anymore. Yeah, Nobody's not, using yeah. the roads that we used well, to use. Well, sometimes we were the only ones to use it. Well, yeah. that's yeah. true, but at least it was mm-hmm. a road at one time. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an amazing area, you know, and, s- and it's fascinating to go to places that you know a photographer has never been to. Probably oh, yeah. Navajos, you know, sheep herders. Yes, but photographers, no, you know. And uh, to know that you have photographs of an area that nobody else has. You know, and it's so quiet really and so peaceful. Yeah. yeah, beautiful area. Yes. So that was the nature of that episode here on hiking in Navajo land. So that takes us to episode number number 71 and so uh, number 72 we talked about our workshops number 73 we talked about the find out summit and the little known workshop and then number 74 we went back for one more episode on living in Navajo land called Navajo humor and uh, that was the last one that was the sixth episode and the last one in the series so why don't we listen to a little excerpt of that one because one of the things that's really important about Navajos or Navajo culture is humor. Right. That we consider humor to be an essential part of being a human being. Yes. But if you don't have humor, you're not a complete human being. There's something missing, right? So let's listen to an excerpt on Navajo humor. A student came to class right after Christmas and he had this brand new winter coat. I can't remember. It was a football team, some football team. And I said, hey, that's a really cool jacket. Can I borrow it this weekend? So (laughs) that's the joke. And he's got to... Because he can't say no. Because he can't say no. So he's coming uh, coming up with all these things in his mind that he can say without saying no, that I can't take it home this weekend. And then one time I came to class wearing a beautiful squash blossom necklace. And one of my students was <laughs> said to me, hey, Brio, that's a really nice necklace. I think my aunt would really like it. Do you think I could take that home with me today? <laughs> right. And yeah. you can't say no either. Right? No, and I can't say no either. And so you have so. to find out what to say because you don't want to give it to that kid either. No. And if they're stuck or they honestly can't think of something to say, then you just, you just say, just kidding. Right. You know what right. I mean? And it lets everybody off the hook. Right. Yeah. Everybody is fine and we yeah. just start again. On yeah, it's the aspect of Navajo culture of not saying no. Yes. No is not something that they say much at all. No. And so you play jokes on each right. other just because of the We fact can never say no. Yeah. You can't say so no. So you can ask for things uh, knowing See, that, um, that you know, no you're matter get how it. Right. No matter yeah. how outrageous yeah. right. it is, yeah. you know, and the the fun part is is coming up with these creative ways of saying no without saying no. Right. 
<laughs> you know, yeah. it can be a lot of fun. Yeah. But that's when you know when you're really involved in a culture. Right. You and, know, that and, you understand the culture. And it's you... possible because there is a sense of humor in the culture mm-hmm. that it's not going to be offensive. You might oh, put no. them on the spot, but they have a way out, and that is to laugh at it. Too. Right, right. Because in a sense, you know, if you did not have humor as part of the culture, then there's no way out. Right. right? But yeah. you have to, there has to be a way mm. out, you know. Yeah. And so. humor is very important when you're creative because it relaxes you, you know. Right. It's an important aspect of creativity. You know, people don't realize that, but humor is an inherent part of creativity. Well, I remember we were teaching a workshop and we were in Monument Valley and we were in the Hogan. And the tour guide is telling his tour group not to sit on the hot wooden stove. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, and then you said because I forgot what I said. Oh, you said because you're going to burn your rear end or something yeah. like that. And he, and he was, whipped was his like, head right <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, well, I don't think they really understood what the the thing was. I think they did not understand that the stove was hot. Was hot, but it was active. It was a fire. Oh yeah, in the stove. Yeah, yeah. It was really hot. It's not just there for decoration. No, no. They, because sometimes tourists are like, "Oh, what a nice historical arrangement." Well, <laughs> this is not a historical <laughs> no. arrangement. Somebody's living in there. You know? Right. And yeah. the stove is active and it's warm and it's hot and there's wood fire in there and, and if you sit in it you're going to burn your behind right you know? right yeah well for yeah. me it was like really logical yeah. i was like why would you have to explain this to your group right. that the wood stove is because hot and don't sit on it and because they think it's a museum would, who would sit on a wood stove I because they think it's a museum yeah, yeah. and there's yeah. no chairs yeah. right and you know i also think that is because that maybe they leaned up against had, it well, i think that that guy had a group and somebody sat on the stove or leaned up against it or something. Something or, happened yeah. and we got burned. Right. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> the nice thing about Navajos having a very good sense of humor is that it's an easy way into starting a conversation with somebody. Instead of trying to find something to say, you try to find something funny to talk about. Right. Because I right. remember one time we were at this little kitchen, an outdoor kitchen in Lukachukai or nearby. And we were going to buy fried bread and there was a waiting line. And, you know, when people are waiting, you, know, you get a little antsy and you don't know what to do. And you look at each other and you don't know what to say. Right. And uh, one Navajo said, it's, it's really good fried bread. And I said, yes, and it's very healthy for your heart. And he started laughing his head off. It's really you know, good for your heart, Because yes. obviously it's loaded with fat and definitely not very good for your arteries. Well, and you had doctors asking yeah. you if it was okay to eat that. Well, I think, yeah, and I think that's what led to it. And uh, he totally knew where I was coming from. But they respect the fact that you have a sense of humor. For them, it's a notch on your belt. Right. right. It's an asset. It's something important. Right. But you're a better person if you have a sense of humor. Oh, I agree. But if I uh, look at every time we see our Navajo friends, the amount of time that we spend laughing with right. each other, it is huge. And it doesn't matter if we haven't seen each other for 12 years or 10 years. The minute mm. we get together, we just start teasing each other and just laughing and well, laughing we're happy and to laughing. be together, for one. I think but, uh, so. But I think so. that Navajo is also really like laughing yes yes and that's really interesting because when you look at them a lot of people are like they are very stern well they are that's their appearance but behind this sternness there is a very rich sense of humor oh absolutely you just need to bring it out and it's not difficult all you have to do is crack a joke you know right 
Right. It's amazing how many people show nothing, even though they have a heavy emotional involvement with you. I remember, uh, I think at Sliding House Overlook, or um, during our last visit to Canada Shea, there was this photographer, well, we didn't know the photographers, these two tourists that had this wooden camper shell that was obviously handmade, very much like a canoe, you know, a, a, whole, a handmade wooden camper shell that looked like a canoe. Right. And they were looking at me and I was looking at them. And I thought, well, I really should really talk to them because it's, you know, why stay at each other, right? right. So <laughs> I, I got tired of it. I thought this is not going anywhere. Right. So I went to him and I said, you know, I really admire your wooden camper shell. It looks like a canoe. And he says, well, I was a canoe maker and then I decided to make a camper shell and I do woodworking and so on. And, and I said, well, that's very nice work. And then he looks at me and says, you're Alan Ryu? I'm like, yes, I am. He said, oh, I have your book and, uh, you know, I this and that you. and I follow you and so on. Well, you know, of course, I tell him that's great. That's fantastic. You know, I gave him a business card. You know, we just talked for a while. But if I hadn't made a, a comment about his board, he would never have come to me and said, hi. You he know, probably he wouldn't have said a word. Yeah, he would have yeah. said a word. You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Even though he knew who you right. were and you but didn't the, the know who he was. The minute we started talking, he was obviously extremely emotional and had lots to say and so on. And I think it's yes. the same with the Navajos. You know, behind this very stern appearance, there is a, a very rich sense of humor and a very rich persona. But you have to make it come out. You have to make the first step. You know. Right. And right. and for me, the easiest first step with Navajos is to just crack a joke. Right. Or compliment them. Right, you know. exactly. Uh, and, and if you watch the Navajo women, when I mm. wear my jewelry, they compliment me all the time. They're it's a ve very good first step. They're very step, polite. Well, they're it's very a very good polite. first step. It doesn't offend and it doesn't, it's not a judgment. It's non-judgmental. I mean, I remember when uh, on the same, maybe not the same trip, but another trip, uh, at the turn off to look at Shukai, we stopped. We were looking for tamales, and we saw this sign that said tamales. And so we pulled in, and uh, we talked to this Navajo man. He had a U.S. flag, and then it was uh, Memorial Day, right? It was Memorial and Day. And we said, how many tamales do you have? And he, he had, I don't know how many, he had a lot. And he said, well, we want 20, right? Right. And so we, we or 24, we bought two dozens, I think. And they were really happy because, you know, obviously two dozens uh, is not common, right? Usually they sell one or two at a time. And then on the way out, uh, after we had packaged all the tamales, I told him, uh, well, thank you for your service, you know, uh, and for what you did in the military and so on. And he was really, really I mean, he, he was, he reacted to that. You know? He did. Yeah. But he was, he also liked your joke when you said, uh, who makes the tamales? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, he, and he points and he goes, she does. And you, and you said, oh, I see. So she makes the tamales and you sell yeah. them yeah. or, or yeah. you get the money right. or and something. I, or you get the money. Yeah, he said, you, yeah. she makes them and, and you, you take sell the them. Money. Yeah. Yeah. And then I say, only well, it's a little bit like us. You know, I pay for, I buy them and she eats them. Right. <laughs> and of course, now everybody's he laughing. He loved it. Yeah, we yeah. love it because it's very simple humor, but it does a lot in terms of breaking the ice and, and making us relate to each other as human beings. It does. Because one it of does. the things that is fundamentally human is humor. Right. I mean, animals don't have humor. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you see two cows in a field that meet for the first time, they don't laugh. And goodness, the number yeah. of napkins that she gave us. She must have given, uh, well, she gave us as many <laughs> napkins as tomatoes, so that was 20 napkins. No, she gave us just like a We had a stack that was two yeah. or three inches yeah. thick. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, but that's what I told him. You know, I said, you know, so she makes them and you sell yes. them. He says, yes. Yeah. Well, that's a Buddha like us. I buy them and she eats them. You know, so he yes. was laughing. Yeah, know. but I tell you, every time I go, we we should do one episode on uh, Navajo food because right. I tell you, I have 
some of the best food on the reservation. I, I've yeah. never, ever gotten sick on Navajo food. No, that's ever. a good idea. We, ever. And, and we have never done one on make Navajo food. episode number seven, you know, yeah. living in Navajo land, Navajo food. Yeah. So, yeah. But that one was about Navajo humor and uh, definitely a very important one. important one, I think. After that, we talked again about uh, our workshops. We had an interview with Paul Griffith about uh, me and, and uh, my photography and my business and my career. We had uh, a podcast about the Marketing Success Seminar, about the Antelope Canyon Workshop, the Advanced Adjustment Layers Mastery, the Zion Summit, and then the Little Known Workshop. So a whole series of uh, episodes on the different things that we teach as far as seminars and workshops. And then we started at number 82 on the section on what is art, which oh, we just completed. That. Yes, that's so a lot of So I don't fun. see the point of really going and doing excerpts of those because we just talked about it and it would be redundant. Right. But those were the last three episodes before we started the podcast story. Right. And so this brings us to the last episode of the podcast as far as today's concern. And, uh, you know, the end of this specific series on the podcast story. Right. And I remember you were talking about the next series where we'll be talking about some of our art collections in the house and and doing other episodes. I think it's very important to talk about art because, for one, there's very little talk going on. And for two, there's very little talk going on at the level of people talking about art in everyday terms. You know, we we read or we hear a lot about artwork being sold for $100 million or $30 million. We hear a lot about auctions. We hear a lot about scandals. Um, you know, Peter Leake selling a photograph for $10 million. You know, very big prices. But we don't hear a lot about people just talking about art disconnected from the financial value of art, from right. the monetary value of art. Right. So I know we definitely want to do that. We also were thinking about doing a series on art books that we have. Right. Because uh, some of them are very interesting. Some of them are very old and collectible. Right. And some of them, like The Artist's Way, will helps artists find their way in creating art and well, whatnot. Books are educational. Right. And, and so it's I... Im- yeah. I mean, just like people don't uh, look at art very much and don't collect art, I don't think they read about art a whole lot. I mean, a lot of these books will never exist as e-books. You know, a lot of people say, oh, I, oh. Don't, I don't buy books anymore. I buy e-books. Well, good luck buying an e-book of a book that is basically a historical book. Right. <laughs> you know, right. it's not going to happen. Right. It's hard to find as a printed book and there are no e-books. So that's really an important aspect of all of that, that in a sense, we want to have a rich artistic life, which means creating art, looking at art, reading about art, studying the history of art. And collecting art. And and collecting art, you know, and meeting artists also and going Mm -hmm. to artistic events and whatnot. It's not just about making photos and saying, I create fine art photography. It's actually saying, I create photos, they are fine art photography, but then I have all of these very rich experience these very rich activities about the world of art so that's some of the things coming up in the podcast which i find very exciting because the main focus is art right you know and and it's been art since the beginning we just uh, make it more specific as far as specific activities related to art but it's always been about art yes we are just shifting from let's say the creation of art or how art is created to talking about art in Mm -hmm. different ways yes yeah, so this is some of the things coming up. And for the time being, this is uh, the end of our 
podcast on the podcast story. And we thank you for listening to all four episodes. And we look forward to having you again on our podcast in the next episodes.